Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Great gardens need great plants, and great plants people the world over throughout history have made it their lives calling to bring gardeners great plants, whether introducing native plants to the horticultural trade, selecting best garden varieties from naturally occurring choices, by breeding, and by educating both the trade and gardeners in their gardens on best cultivation of these same plants. Today's guest is one such well-known and long-respected plants people who have helped to shift our horticultural world for the better these past several decades. Roy Diblick. Roy began selecting and propagating native plants for ecologically and beautifully designed gardens beginning in the 1970s. And as a gardener, nurseryman, writer, and thinker, he went on to co-found Northwind Perennials Farm in Burlington, Wisconsin. Northwind is a nursery and design business serving public and private gardens. Roy, as an expert at creating compelling and ecologically contributing combinations of native and non-native plants, offers us all knowledge for any garden and gardener seeking to deepen their roots. I am a longtime student and admirer of your work, Roy, and I can't tell you the number of episodes and conversations that I have aired in which it is told to me that Roy Diblick was behind this planting plan or this plant choice. I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. Well, thanks so much. It's it's great being here. It's very exciting to be here, actually, to talk about uh planting and gardens. And that's very cool. I would love to have you introduce yourself to people, how you title what you do and and who you are in the world, and maybe the role that plants play in your life at this moment in your life, Roy. I have a, a, a normal beginning. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Berwyn, Illinois, in a Czech-Italian neighborhood. And my whole dream was to play baseball. And that's all you did as a kid. You played baseball, you went to school, and you hung out with your friends. And, and then I realized uh, at the college that I wasn't any good in baseball. <laughs> you know, it's a, as a group of players get bigger, your, your talents decline. So I had, well, what am I going to do? What, what's life going to be for me? And, and I realized by watching all the dads, what they did with their, with their careers, I didn't want to work doors. I didn't want to be a printer, a loading dock person. I didn't want to deliver milk. I didn't want to wait on change <laughs> tires on cars. Came from a middle-class community. And the dads were hard workers, but it wasn't anything I was interested in. So I, I became an outdoor education teacher. So my background basically is outdoor education. I worked with the kids from the city of Chicago and Cabrini Green projects. Uh, we took them to to uh, Cook County Forest Preserve and just introduced them to a different way of being for a week. You know, took them out from the city and, and just walked through the woods, did whatever they wanted. We 
we explored their dreams. I, I didn't plan anything. Because usually if I plan things, you're planning things based on what you'd like to do. And since I wasn't a kid, I was you know, 22, 23 years old. I let them decide what they wanted to do. And it was more fun. And that mm -hmm. program uh, got canceled. And usually the good things are the first to go in the mid-70s. So I got a job at a park district taking care of parks and mowing and running you know, baseball fields. And then along came the natural garden. A friend of mine bought the natural garden. It was started in 1953. And he bought it from the old owner, Mr. Stevens, who was 84 when he sold it. I have a good work ethic because in Berwyn, you grow up, you know, work is fun. And, and your parents guide you in that. You know, they tell you something you love to do and earn a living doing it. Don't worry about making money. If you love what you do, you can earn a good living. So I just started getting involved in perennials. And I didn't know a perennial from a doorknob. I couldn't tell you one. <laughs> okay, so wait, I'm going to stop you here. Tell people what uh, the natural garden was. Natural garden, we, uh, Mr. Stevens had uh, everything in the ground. He didn't have containers. There were no containers at that time in 78. And I dug, there was about 340 different species of perennials in the ground. He had, he had a lot of them. It was a perennial plant nursery. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. So not a display garden, but a perennial right. plant nursery right off the bat. And they were all in the ground. Wow. And so tell us a little bit more about um, the founder of that. Walter Stevie. He started it in 53. He just ran around and he started buying perennials and he put them in the earth. And then he would sell them. Uh, people stop out at his place. Every, he was there every day. We retired. And for the next, uh, what was it, 20-some years, he would dig them, divide them, put them back in the ground, and he'd sell you a piece. And everything was 50 cents, 35 cents to 50 cents. <laughs> but he did. He went. He ran around when homes were being built in Kane County, outside of St. Charles. He would run around every new home site and dig out all the trilliums, the jack and the pulpits, the map. He would actually save the plants. And nobody cared at that time, because yeah. if you see an old guy running around digging, you just think that poor, poor old guy, <laughs> you know, just don't bother. Bro. And he brought him back to natural garden and he put him in his beds. And then he, again, would sell them for 50 cents. And then uh, that's where I started. Wow. Okay, wait. So a lot of his plants were were native. Did he also have quite a bit of, uh, you know, non-native oh, yeah. cultivated plants oh. from historic settings? And yeah. yeah, he had all the full line of perennials that uh, were available at that time. All the geranium sanguineums, uh, armerias. He had a full range of perennial. And again, I didn't know one from another, but he would he, right, so you, he sat you, out there with me because he still felt it was his place. So he would sit on a stool. And he'd describe each plant to me and how to dig it. The people that went there and shopped still thought I was a nephew. I said, you, you can call me anything you want. I'm just happy he's here. <laughs> okay, wait. It, it, what year is it? And you buy this? 1978. Yeah, that's when I, I started there. And I put it in a beer flat. And then I put four plants who would fit in the beer flat. I dug them out on four. He showed me how to dig them on four inch squares. And I'd prune them back for you because... You couldn't sell a plant with all the foliage on. That would be a stress. That would be stressful for the plant to try to live through mm -hmm. that. So I pruned it back. People yeah. complain a little bit. You're cutting all my flowers off. <laughs> and then each box equaled, uh, you know, two dollars. So that was our beginning at Natural Garden. And then I took July. I took a day off in July of seventy-eight. No, seventy-nine. Seventy-nine. 
and I went to the Schulenberg Prairie, the Morton Arboretum. I, to me, a prairie was just mm. a vacant lot in the city. They called it a prairie. And you went to the prairie to play baseball or just hang out. And then uh, when I saw the Schulenberg Prairie, the Morton Arboretum, I, I was overwhelmed. I, I'm just telling you now, getting goosebumps by describing it. I never saw anything more beautiful in my life. And I couldn't figure out why isn't this everywhere? Why is this in this 35 acre way out of, out of the middle of nowhere at the Arboretum? You had to really walk to find it to get there. So I went to ask Ray Schulenberg, who was at the Arboretum. I said, I wanted to meet him and see how, how, did, how, how can we grow this stuff? Because there was some way to grow it. So I went to visit, visit him and I had no appointment. I just walked in and said, I'm Mr. Schulenberg, my name's Roy. And I'm very curious about the prairie. I want to, I'd like to know so much more about it. And his eyes started twinkling. He was such a wonderful man. Mm. As long as you were curious about anything, he would sit and have all day for you. So he told me about the prairie, how he started it in 61. And he and friends drove around the Chicago area. And their goal in the Chicago area in the 60s was to find all the remnants, all the prairies, wetlands, woodland areas, because the only way we're going to learn about how to get into our future planting is through the remnants, understanding these plants have lived together in social systems of living. And without the remnants, we have no direction, just speculation on our part. So he and uh, uh, Bob Best and Dick Young and one more, they drove around in a little car and they found all the remnants that they could find in Chicago area, let all the communities know about them. And that's why we have such beautiful remnant prairies in the Chicago area, like the uh, Markham. Markham Prairie is the most photographed prairie in the world. People come from all over the world to see the Markham Prairie. And then I just, just got to know them a little better and understand. Uh, so we started growing native plants in 79. And Ray said one thing. He said, Roy, I'll tell you one thing, though. No one is going to buy them. No one. So you're going to have to give them away. We did. We gave them away. We were the first nursery to containerize them. We put them in two-inch two pots. Yeah. And people, he said, people just aren't ready. And he was right. You know, people thought they yeah. were weeds and they, they, they were just too tall, too big, too messy. But then people started coming back saying, boy, that plant you gave me, that what do you call prairie dock? That's a beautiful plant. You have more of those. And by the time I left the natural garden in 1991 to start Northwood with two friends of mine, we were selling 325,000 native plants. Every year. It really yeah. it took off through the through the 80s. And uh, perennials did yeah. too. We went from 17,000 in sales in 1978 to 1.5 million in sales in 1991. So the 80s, yeah, wow. herbaceous plants just, I think they became discovered. You know, as far as landscape value, not just Vinca and Pachysandra and Junipers. Yeah. Well, and I think there aren't that many things we want to look back on the 80s for with, with a lot of joy and reverence. Um, but it was a decade of a renaissance because they seem to come up pretty regularly across centuries in our world, a renaissance of nursery people and plants people who were sharing and collecting and propagating and designing. I mean, you think of the some of the great nurseries like the Natural Garden or in our area, 
Canyon Creek. And I mean, there were a lot of plants, people doing really great things with perennials from our native ecosystems, but also from around the world and kind of mixing and matching them in this way. Before we get into the founding of Northwind, I want to I want you to take us back just a tiny bit, Roy. And um, clearly you weren't going to be a professional baseball player. Maybe that was going to be your first choice. Right. That that ended that ended quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you still love baseball. Oh yeah. I want to understand the mindset of a young Roy Diblick who goes from working in an outdoor education program and loving uh, this kind of spontaneous learning and joy with kids in the outdoors to the Roy Diblick who's like, I don't know what a perennial is. I'm not even sure how to take care of them, but I'm going to buy this nursery. What's the mindset there, Roy? I think what it was initially it was curiosity. I, I just was so curious mm-hmm. about so much. There's so much diversity in the plants. And then they they mm-hmm. seem to have such a way of sharing who they were with you based on not just flower color and bloom time, but just the way their foliage appeared in the spring coming out of the earth. And I think when you see plants, not in tainers, but in a setting where they're living their life in the earth, they present themselves so much differently to you. When you see plants presenting themselves in a pot, that's too human driven. The plants are too, too uh, put in a position to be too human. Here's a, here we are. Here I'm in a pot. I'm captured. I'm caught. I don't know. I can't. I can't perform up to my abilities in this pot. I hope you take me home. Put me in the earth. So when you see a plant in a pot, it's just another product to most people. Mm-hmm. The plant senses that too. I think the plants are aware that you know what I'm just something someone's going to buy, take home, and most plants know three things about humans. You better entertain them. You better feed them or clothe them or they're going to throw you in the compost pile. So that's how plants understand human behavior. Most humans look at plants as entertainment. Oh, look how pretty my this, that, or this is, or that is. Look how good it looks here. And if the plants don't entertain humans, they go in the compost pile. And that's kind of a, a sad thing to say, but when you watch people buy plants, they buy them for entertainment value. But that's changing too, because there's a lot more plants that are being sold and purchased for pollinator gardens, for bird migratory bird habitat, for butterfly, for habitat management. So it's a very exciting time to live in. We're about the, I think, a tremendous transformational time in horticulture, ecology. Oh, I agree. Tremendous, yeah. yeah. Tremendous. So I want to go back to this beautiful articulation of how much more we can learn from our plants if we allow them to be in their more natural states and um, and we observe them in that state uh, with curiosity and, and respect. And there was clearly something about your mentor uh, that helped encourage that understanding, perhaps. And clearly you learned from him and the plants what a perennial was and and how to dig and how yeah. to care for them. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of hands-on education um, with the plants and Walter there at the natural garden in your early days? Yeah, I think I, I think you're right. It was it was very uh, it wasn't how much money you're going to make or how much you know, it wasn't about uh, uh, traditional marketing and things that you know, we're, we're used to in our culture. 
because I've seen this old 84-year-old guy get on his hands and knees and touch and love the earth. And, and the way he described the plant to mm. me, well, when you're digging that, go on, a big, go on more of an angle, right? Go on more of an angle. That's got a that's got a, a fibrous root system. You don't have to take that much soil with it. We're like, he had all these special ways of acknowledging how this plant could survive being dug and relocated. And he was joyful about selling them to other people. It wasn't like he was like something. It was how he loved sharing his plants with other people. And he was so happy to get his 35 cents or his 50 cents. It wasn't, it, it wasn't like, oh, I got to sell 10 more plants so I can go out and buy a big screen TV or something. It was, mm -hmm. he, and, and the way he would divide a piece off a plant, put it back in the earth. And I'd say, is that going to live? He said, yeah, you just got to water it, nurture it and observe it and take care of it. And that's when I started learning how to do plant production. Mm -hmm. Little pieces would fall off. I started putting them in little pots. And we had soup cans. We used Campbell soup cans for pots, but I killed everything <laughs> because I filled the I filled mm. the pots with earth, and I turned the soil into bricks. I I didn't know it was a different culture. When you put soil in a pot and water it, it gets rock hard. There's no oxygen in it, so every plant died. I killed everything. So I went to a nursery, Midwest Ground Covers, and they showed me the California mix which was 50% peat moss and 50% sand. And then everything lived. I was like, it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. 50% sand, 50% peat moss. And all my, when I started containerizing little plugs and, and doing production, the plants lived. And then I figured out fertilization. And then we became, I became a grower. And, and I really loved this growing thing was too good production of plants and we started growing native plants we grew 25 species of native prairie and they started to sell in 81 and 82 and we got up to 105 species of native prairie by the late 80s that we were and mostly they were purchased by army corps of engineer projects for detention ponds retention ponds they weren't purchased aesthetically again people just weren't ready this is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Since the 1970s, plantsman Roy Diblick, co-founder of North Wind Perennial Farm in Burlington, Wisconsin, has been contributing to our collective and ecologically based garden knowledge and plant choices. Sometimes referred to as the prairie whisperer or the person behind the plantings in some of our most famous North American public gardens. We'll be back for more from Wisconsin-based Roy Diblick. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection, the rich intersection, of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. 
the Garden Conservancy realizes more than ever the essential role that gardens play in our cultural, physical, and emotional health and well-being. On September 29th and 30th of this year, the Conservancy is organizing its inaugural Garden Futures Summit, dedicated to the essential role our gardens, public and private, play in this exact cultural, physical, and emotional health and well-being, no matter who we are or where we garden. This two-day event will explore what opportunities gardens uniquely present to us at this moment of societal and cultural regeneration and germination. The event will take place in person at the New York Botanical Garden, but it will also have online viewing opportunities, and it will feature around two dozen invited speakers from across the gardening world in three sessions, environment, community, and culture. I am so honored to be among those speakers and will be moderating, as you might see fit, the community sessions. And I'm even more excited to have read in the recent Garden Conservancy newsletter that during these two incredible days, other speakers will include admired gardeners, horticulturalists, and thought leaders, including Abra Lee of Conquer the Soil, Evie Diamantopoulou and Jaffer Kolb of New Affiliates, David Godshall of Terramoto LA, Isabella Tree of Rewilding, Edwina Van Gaal of The Perfect Earth Project, and Rebecca McMacken, formerly of Brooklyn Bridge Park and now a Harvard Loeb Fellow. Stay tuned for more speaker announcements from this dynamic September convening at the New York Botanical Garden. And well-designed and planned Garden Conservancy, it's going to be a great event. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with nurseryman, writer, educator, and consummate gardener, Roy Diblick. Beginning in the 1970s, Roy's passion for native plants in their places has contributed in a multitude of untold ways to the ecological gardening movement we're enjoying today. As we come back, Roy is describing what he saw the day he met the Schulenburg Prairie, what he saw that gave him goosebumps and would change his life and his planting plans and understanding from there on. It was the skeleton of the baptisia, as far as I could see, with the mm. sorghastrum coming up through it, the echinacea pallidas were just starting to bloom. It was an endless view of them with schizacrium and sorghastrum and uh, dahlia purpurea, the flower heads for mm. the dahlias coming up, foliage of granite uh, cone flowers. It, it was just a, an enormous collection of architecture and structure. And just the little bits of purple and yellow starting to bloom for the retinibus, the echinaceas, and a dab of dahlia. But the strong architecture of the white uh, baptisia, alba, that was too good. And it was, it was just architecturally Beautiful. And I've never seen anything like it. It's like seeing, you know, uh, the Grand Canyon for the first time. I've never seen anything in that scale. So the scale plus the structure, texture, it was very moving. And because I was getting involved with plants and I'd never seen anything like that, my thought was, why can't we grow these and 
show people, you know, the same kind of beauty and the same kind of get develop a same kind of awareness for others. Cause it was hard to get there. You had to really take a long walk to get to the shoe. Now they have mm-hmm. it much better more in Arbor. You pull up park. They have a beautiful little area that acknowledges the prairie and values they have. So it's much easier to get to now. And then meeting Ray. I think when I went in to talk to Ray Schulenberg, I was like, wow, this guy is really passionate. And he was like a little wizard too. I could bring him sedge and I would drive out and he'd be putting his coat on. Oh, Roy, that's Carrick's Brevior. I go, how? And in my mind, you know, how do you know this? How, do you, how, can, how can you be putting your coat on? There's 240 species of sedges in our area. How would you know? And that's just how that, that time the Arboretum was that way. And it's, it's in a beautiful way now. It just had these magical men that were there. Floyd Swink, Ray Schulenberg, and Jerry Wilhelm, and, a, and another group doing woody plants. Uh, it was just a, it was the right time for a right group to get together. So take us to, you get lit up clearly by uh, the life of the ecosystem of the prairie, the plants of the prairie, how to find them, how to grow them, how to know them. You build this thriving business um, in cultivated and native plants of your place. And you then decide to go on to another adventure. Tell us about what happened to the natural garden at that point, And then the, the Genesis story for Northwind perennials. And I'll ask you some additional questions then. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was an exciting time in the 80s because I, I learned how to be a grower because we did start, we went from the field to be a total container nursery. So I really learned how to get, understand plants and how they lived uh, for a short period of time in containers, what their shelf life was. And also that containers were just a mode of transportation to get them from a young growing plant into the earth and then how they associated with other plants that was really left up to the landscape architects and contractors that came out to buy the plants. But what happened in my world was natural garden eventually got too big. By the 90s, I had 25 employees and I went just from me to 25. I wasn't really a grower anymore or a plantsman. I was uh, I could, like a rubber band factory. It didn't matter. I was a factory and I, was, I wasn't being able to pay as much attention to who the plants are and the future of plants too. I didn't want to grow the same plants over and over because a lot of them I was growing, I had no need. I don't need Coreopsis sunray. You know, I'm not a big, I don't need that. I'm not going to plant that anywhere. It's a short-lived plant. I don't want Shasta daisies around that. Not that they're not beautiful, but I just, personally, it, it had no value to me personally. So why would I be growing 6,000 of them and just to send them off to a fate that I had no control over? So I, I thought, you know, maybe we could start our own place. So I talked to two friends of mine and we could stay small. Our whole goal was to stay small and be personal with the things we love to do and earn a living. My mom's words still echoed through me. She always told me, she goes, Roy, if your goal is to make money, that's all you'll think about. And you'll never make enough because that's all you're going to be concerned about is making more. Go find something you love, she said, and earn a living. And at the time she said that, you're just a kid. You're like, yeah, okay, ma. Okay. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Whatever. What do you know? 
<laughs> but it kind of stuck with me. So in 91, we left the natural garden and Colleen and Steve and I bought some land up here in Lake Geneva. And I went to talk to Midwest Ground Covers, who has a, it was Peter Orham. He started North uh, Ground in 1968. He came here on a freighter from Denmark with a suitcase. And he turned his life into a $50 million nursery. And he wanted to get into perennials. I said, well, I can grow them for you. I knew how to grow them. So he, he and I had a handshake agreement in 91. I would get him into perennials and he would take everything I could grow. So we, I started producing perennials up here at Northwind and we were producing 400,000 a year for Midwest ground covers. We'd send them on a semi to Michigan and the semi deliveries were set up based on stage potting. So that way I set up their stage potting schedule initially till they had people trained and put in place in about four or five years. And the plants were sent to Michigan based on stage potting and went back to Charles, Illinois. So he went from Vinca, Pacassandra, Juga, and Daylilies, and a lot of shrub woody plants to a full line of perennials. And now he's a, they've expanded that. And then they're a native plant. They bought the natural garden. <laughs> they bought that in 2010, I think. So, so that went well. And then, and that was our business angel was uh, Midwest. And then Steve did installation and maintenance and woody plant designs and very, he was beautiful with stonework. He was a stone artist. He, he was full, thoughtful about the placement of stones and every piece of every wall, every patio he put in was a signature. He was very, that's why he left the place he was because he wanted to use natural rocks. He didn't want to use pave lock and all that rocks that were preformed. And then Colleen ran retail and she's beautiful with the artistic way she, our retail set up in our 1907 dairy barn. So it, it worked out really well. And then we've been here now 31 years. And unfortunately, Steve passed away two years ago. We miss him and we miss the beauty. We still have all the rock walls and walks that he created, the brickwork, uh, paving. So that's still a big part of Northwind and the placement of woody plants he did for 30 years. Without him, we don't do that anymore. We're a, a gardening-driven business. So we put perennial gardens in, design perennial gardens. I do that. And then I have a team that's really become strong in gardening practices. And we're actually part of this, the beginning of two schools of gardening, professional gardening, with the College of DuPage in Illinois at Cantini and with Gateway College here in Milwaukee or Kenosha at Yerkes Observatory on Lake Geneva. So we're going to start to we're going to show young people how to interpret and develop relationships with plants, become professional gardeners, and they can make 25, 35, 40 dollars an hour because with knowledge, you don't have to waste time and waste money doing traditional practices that no one's ever questioned and don't really work for plants living in social communities like wood chips. There's no real reason to put wood chips around everything four to three, three to four inches a year. And we've just never, we just never questioned it. We just keep doing it. 
So now I'm going to take you back again just a little bit. So you and Steve and uh, Colleen start Northwind in about 91. And your your goal is to stay at least philosophically small. I mean, you 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 create a pretty big plant production uh, for your business partner. And that kind of helps, I, I would imagine, provide the financial security for you to grow the the retail and right. it gave us a good start right yeah and so tell us about how you approach what perennials you were going to grow or experiment with and how you began working in some of these innovative gardens that you have worked in, in including i believe the Lurie and um you know other what have become hallmarks of uh this new ecological planting kind of movement in our world right now? Well, the key I, I always felt was durability, regional durability with a plant. I don't really appreciate fashion plants. And there's so many fashion plants constantly introduced every year to the trade. I didn't need to get involved with them. You go to any Home Depot or uh, Walmart, and there's nothing wrong with buying fashion plants, except they don't last. You can, you can put them in and they're going to disappear and you're going to have to keep replacing them. And it's not all of them. There's a lot of good hybrids. I mean, there are some good hybrid perennials that have durability. They have a nice tone of color for foliage. They're very good for a lot of designers who like to add maybe a little bit of copper foliage, softer pink flowers. There's a lot of good hybrids, but most of them are just, I've, like I've tried a lot of the echinaceas. They have no genetic knowledge how to live in our area. So I, 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 they're very short lived. Some of them do well, you know, I can name five or six that have done well and have, have a longer shelf life than two or three years, but you have to find the ones that have durability. And then after durability, I went for uh, foliage and architectural features because flowers come and go. <laughs> so I wanted to find plants that represented themselves well with strong foliage, regrowth of strong foliage, and an architectural feature. So the plant, if it got large, it didn't break down quickly. And if some did break apart quickly, they broke apart quickly in an exciting way. So at least when it's completely falling apart, it's kind of exciting to watch it deteriorate over a month or two. So it was just kind of in that direction. And then uh, we started growing those. So our one thing I would tell people, the exciting thing about Northwind is that we have more plants that nobody wants than any nursery in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, tell us some of those groups that were initially like a hard sell to the traditional gardener or land manager um, or designer that are, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing they are ones that are, are pretty star plants now. Well, at first it just prairie drop seed. In the late in the early nineties, oh, yeah. Sprabulus mm. heterolepis. Wow, oh, so beautiful. Great texture, beautiful plant. Smells like hot buttered pop when it blooms. It's a, but yet people were and they were so caught up in penicetum. That penicetum allopecoroides and all the the cultivars coming off of penicetum that no one really gave Sprabulus a chance because then it was native. So some people thought that was weedy. It would look too weedy because it was the, so it was kind of judgments we still make now, you know, about first impression or 
uh, without giving things a well-thought-out opportunity. We, we judge everything quickly based on either one experience we had or one something, a comment somebody made long ago or something. And we keep that kind of uh, feeling alive. But one thing that won over people was its durability. Penicetums would die through the winter. If it was a wet winter, you could lose, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the penicetums. If it's a wet, we don't lose anything with sprabulas. They're, they're, not, they're not a plant that's going to decline quickly. And they have a very forgiving nature from moist to dry soil. So because of their durability, people gave them a try. And after they gave them a try, they realized how much they loved the look of the plant, the texture and the foliage and fall color. And I, I think a lot of plants, and there's a perennials like that too. Like I still, I, I have a plant I call, it's called Cephalaria gigantea. And it's a beautiful plant. It gets around seven feet tall, six feet tall, and it's got little yellow flowers like a scabiosa. So the tremendous emotional impact in the garden, you only need one. You don't need to plant hundreds of them because I love a plant that gets people to stop for a moment. Like if you're walking somewhere and you're thinking about your bank account or how you're going to buy your, your, you know, your next new mixed drinker or whatever you can buy for your drinks you make for yourself. And you see this Cephalary, all of a sudden you go, what in the world is that? I've never seen anything like, so any plant that gets you to pause a group of plants too, that gives you to pause. I think that's, that's healthy to break up that, that day of thought where you're consumed with so many other things. It was a whole range of plants like that. Now it's sedges. I do a lot of Carex. I've been doing that since actually the late eighties. So now we're looking at Carex uh, communities and the idea is to put the sedges in first and have them suppress the weed population, but not to put in a mono, monoculture, but to put in maybe five or six different sedges to have a sedge blend. And then after you get the, the weed suppression under management, you don't have to spend all that time weeding. And then we enhance the sedges with uh, shade plants. Could be native, non-native, could be hostas, fern. We use ferns, you have jack and the pulpits, uh, columbines, but the sedges are much more communal unlike uh, Pacassandra or Vinca, they don't take over an area and let and make it difficult for other plants to grow with them. The sedges, you can wiggle in hostas and ferns and pulmonarias or aquilegias, dodecathium. You can, they're much more communal. So they accept a broader range of species that can be mingled in. And in a way, it's a nice way to, to work at gardening is you keep enhancing it based on budget and time, and also knowledge of how people can care for it. Because if you start too complex, you don't have skilled enough people that know how to deal with a complex plant community. So they might not understand it and they won't manage it properly and it'll decline quickly. This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Since the 1970s, plantsman Roy Diblick co-founder of North Wind Perennials Farm in Burlington, Wisconsin, has been contributing to our collective and ecologically based garden knowledge and plant choices. Roy is the person behind the plantings in some of our most famous public gardens. We'll be back for more with Roy Diblick. Stay with us. 
Hey, it's Jennifer. Even though it was 29 degrees this morning, it's definitely feeling like spring here where I garden. And perhaps I have the optimism of spring along with a lot of garden soil under my nails right now, but I feel like there is a renewed energy and tenacity in the garden world germinating right now. I feel it in this conversation with Roy Diblick, who's been in this work for years and years. I feel it from the groups I've been speaking with, like this past weekend at Annie's Annuals in Richmond, California, and the energy around my upcoming April 27th talk at the Minneapolis Institute of Art for their Art in Bloom lecture, and from the energy of other upcoming gatherings that I'm not even a part of, including the Fergus Garrett Lecture for Southern California Horticulture on April 28th, in which he is going to explore how the biodiversity of Great Dixter's Gardens far exceeds the biodiversity supported by the agricultural fields around this historic garden. I am excited by the energy of the new Pacific Horticulture Design Futurists Garden Design Award recently announced, incentivizing good ecological garden designs. And of course, I am very energized about the Garden Conservancy's Garden Futures Summit in September. It really feels to me like our resilience and tenacity, our determination as gardeners to grow a better world is really growing stronger. It's reaching farther. It's including more. It is not ebbing. Do you feel this germinating strength where you are? I so very much hope you do. You're being here with me, many of you, week after week, is part of all of this energy for me, an energy that sustains my work weekly. I hope you know that, and more importantly, I really hope you feel this good, green, growing energy too. Wherever you garden on this generous planet, we harness this energy better together. Thank you. Keep growing. We're back now to our conversation with Roy Diblick, nurseryman, writer, educator, and consummate and enthusiastically curious gardener. Starting in the 1970s, Roy has been a leader in learning from, modeling on, and supporting native plants in their places and in our gardens as a better way forward. His research, outreach, and plant selections have been part and parcel of the beautiful ecological gardening movement of today. As we come back, Roy is addressing his own learning from the ways of prairie plants and what he terms their sociability and communal natures. We try to create everything a living mulch. Every plant that's ever appeared on earth in the temperate zone is self-mulching. It's their stems, yeah. their foliage, their, their flower parts will fall to the earth and that becomes the mulch the plants live in. People think that I'm telling them not to mulch. When you, when you have all the plants, you can let all that stem fall, leaf fall, fall to the earth, and that's the mulch the plants have known and have evolved in for the last 8,000 years here after uh, glaciation mm -hmm. left. So when you look at two things, first of all, I tell people it's like the alphabet. With 26 letters, that's all we have is 26 simple letters in the alphabet. 
the words we've created are endless. There's no end to our creation of words that have meaning and purpose. And then when you put the words together, the endless paragraphs and statements and books and poetry and plays that have been written and our endless ways of communicating, mm -hmm. we all do that with 26 letters. So if you come to know 15 or 20 plants, and that's what I teach in my perennial plant community class at College of DuPage, if you come to know 15 plants well, you can make thousands of combinations with simply 15 plants. And mm -hmm. what you look at when you play is just two things. You don't really look at a bloom time or a color or color of flower. You look at the growth rate and growth habit of each plant you're placing. And when you understand the growth habit and growth rate and how those plants will go from youth to maturity, and if each plant you put together, they can knit together tightly. You can plant them pot to pot if you want. There's no rule. As long as they can share light resources and collect light to stay strong. So when you have likable or a growth rate growth habits that complement each other, when you put the plants together on 12-inch spacing, 10-inch spacing, 18-inch spacing, as long as they collide together in a healthy way because they grow into each other with the similar growth rate and growth habit, not one hitting the other. Mm -hmm. Then the plants have a shared start. They've got a good start and a shared life within a healthy community. And when they dense together, when you cut the light below a thousand foot candles of light or 1500 foot candles of light hitting the air, bare earth, wheat seeds can't germinate. So the quicker you get these plants to collide and knit together, you're, you're reducing, you're suppressing weeds at a high rate. And that, that's the part that frustrates people that want to be gardeners is they all, they all most people think, oh, you're just weeding. Weeding is about 25% of gardening, 30% of gardening. When you get the plants in a position to provide for their own well-being, they don't need that much attention. But if you keep plants too separate and you keep mulching with wood or pine, whatever you're mulching with, you'll be weeding the rest of your life because sunlight is going to keep hitting soil. So you got to come to an agreement with yourself. I don't, I don't want to spend my life weeding. Right. Which is, I think, comes back to your saying what a fantastic moment in horticulture we are experiencing yeah, right now yeah. is this new mental paradigm of what it means to be a good gardener and what a beautiful garden looks like. And again, going back to this moment where you are in 1979, looking at the scale and the strength of the community of plants extending to the horizon in front of you on that prairie and how that then has informed, I think, perhaps so much of what you then bring to the plants that you grow and then how you teach people to grow and live with plants. Um, talk about that idea of scale and, and strength of design and plant choices and how you're experiencing this incredible moment in horticulture, Roy. Like I said, going back to 79, I think that's, I put that in my book. One of the biggest moments I had was when Ray Schillenberg, I went with him to inventory a prairie, a graveyard prairie outside of Naperville. And he threw a square meter he had in his trunk. He unfolded, threw it down in the graveyard, the ground area, and said, Roy, can you tell me how many native plants you found in the square meter? Just give me some ideas. So I'm down there counting. 
And I get up and I go, geez, there's like 16, 18 plants here. Is this healthy? He looked at me like, what? You know, the way they teach horticulture. And again, I've never taken a horticultural class, so I'm very lucky not to be put in instructor's box because what teachers put you in a box. So the only solutions you're ever going to find in life come out of the box of knowledge the teacher put, put you in. So you got to get outside the box. You got to at least don't let the box go above your head so you can see out of it. That's the thing I always tell people. So Ray goes, step inside the square meter, Roy. So I step in there and he goes, you know where you're at now? Now you're, now you're in Illinois. This, this is the healthiest place you can be. That's what prairie was. Messick prairie was 16 to 18 species per square meter. Not four plants per square meter surrounded by wood. And most people were taught they should dig all that out and divide it and space all those plants and, you know, and put them on 18 inch centers and surround them with wood. That was the, that's how you would commonly be taught to handle any perennial garden. You'd have to keep dividing and replanting. And it was true, you, you really do need to do that when you do more block planting. Because if you're doing large block plantings, the plants inside the block will suffer because they're getting heat and humidity and they're not getting enough sunlight. So you do have to divide some of the larger block plantings to rejuvenate those every three to five years, uh, depending on those plant species. It's funny because the way you just articulated that, I thought of how you described plants in pots and how they become too human. And uh, the idea of being in the box as a gardener of whoever taught you um, as a human teaching you rather than the plants teaching you, it's sort of like unpotting us as gardeners a little bit. Right. <laughs> so you're now in year 31, I want to say, of Northwind Perennials. Yeah, this is you have indicated you are starting or in the process of the beginning stages of two new horticultural schools. Give us a little update on where what is Northwind focusing on right now and what are these two schools going to look like and how, how do people learn more about them? Well, Northwind, where our focus is to, I guess, to maintain ourselves as a healthy place to, we, we call ourselves cultivate, educate, and inspire. So we, we want to keep educating. We want to also cultivate and inspire opportunities and possibilities with plants and with activities that go around plants. It's not necessarily just all about plants. It's about a way to, to enjoy other events with plants involved in those events. You know, it could be a birthday, it could be a retirement party. It could be a lot of things in life that we all go through, but how to involve the healthy look of plants to inspire and raise the event to a higher level instead of just having mismanaged shrubs and you know mulch as as the the visual act for most outdoor events have it be more a plant driven so we're always involved in situations like that and working with community like the those around the lake and the i think the schools of gardening they'll be starting one this year at Cantini, and then uh, one next year at Yerkes Observatory. Basically, the people at uh, Yerkes and Cantini, they realize the need for professional gardeners to understand and care for any, any style of planting, whether it's strictly a, a native planting or a native mixed planting with good solid perennials, or even how to, how to understand and interpret woody plants. So with this need for that knowledge, 
both of these uh, plus the two schools, Gateway and College of DuPage, <coughs> have all been encouraging to see kind of a new a new direction, not just landscaping, which is value, but landscapers are really good at keeping everything neat and tidy. So if you want everything to be neat and tidy, we, we've reached that point with, with landscaping. Everything is well-groomed, mowed, trimmed, but we, we need healthy and beautiful. And I think gardeners can give you healthy and beautiful. And, and young people, the, the other opportunity is showing them how to be entrepreneurs. You don't have to go and work for somebody. You know, you can start your own little business with three, four or five trucks and show people how you could compete with the bigger companies because you can actually charge less, but make more, but charge less because your time is spent so efficiently. You're, you're not out there just fluffing up to make it look better. You're not even charging people for mulch. You're letting your understanding how plants can live in, in their own leaf fall and stem fall. So by having all these new ways of working with the plants to provide health and beauty, you can actually charge more per hour, but the customer and clients can spend less per, per square foot because they're, you're actually, the plants are now more responsible for their own well-being. There's not that constant need of human attention. And with that, we get a reinvigorated economy as well as a reinvigorated environment in the garden and outside of the garden. And it really circles back to your your mother's words of wisdom um, about growing, earning a living, but I, I'll call it growing yeah, a, a good living. Good. Right. So will these schools be available only in person or will they be available uh, remotely for, for learners from not the uh, the area that you're in? And how would they find out more about those, Roy? Yeah, we have online classes now at College of DuPage. I do a plant, perennial plant company class at DuPage, which is online. And we, we've had people from all over the world, South America and Europe. So it's been kind of exciting. And then we're starting an online perennial plant communities uh, next year at Gateway. But the, uh, the Yerkes and at Cantini, that'll be hands-on for students for two years. And we need students to tend gardens for two years and understand what their what their actions are so they can see the outcome of their actions. So it's not just uh, putting a plant in and we're done and you water it and we'll weed for two weeks. We'll be we'll be taking care of the garden two years. So whatever they do the first year, they can see the outcome of their actions the second year. And the whole thing, the corporate week, is, is about screwing up everything. And that's how you learn. You don't learn by being cautious and doing everything right. You learn and by doing all the wrong things. We see how we can learn from the wrong things. <laughs> so learning is based mm. on having experiences that sometimes don't always work out the way you think. And then you have to interpret that and find out what you did wrong or what you didn't understand. And it really, it wasn't you did anything wrong. You just didn't know enough to go that far with with what you're doing so what did we all learn from that so we can now question as a group what did we learn from that and what are we going to do the next time and what what's the possibilities of what will from our next experience so we can keep moving forward with our knowledge of of planting and plants so that 10 years from now there's a new movement who knows what that's be you know about 
how to how to manage an open space and put woody plants with perennials or herbaceous plants. So it's always questioning the actions we take, and then looking at you know what the outcome of those actions are, then questioning the outcome and improving upon that to, to keep moving forward. So it's very exciting. That is very exciting. And it's certainly as true of being human as it is of being a human gardener um, as well. So in this ABCs, you know, you you mentioned the fact that, the, you know, if you can learn well 15 plants, you can have endless combinations and design opportunities for a beautifully designed ecological space. I, 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 we probably don't have time to go through 15, but if you were to suggest to people five really good plants to start in this combination ABCs, uh, what would those five plants be? Oh uh, boy, that's hard because it's so real. Like it was, I if, know. If you were sitting here in uh, the Midwest, I'd start with Sporobolus, Coreopsis, Zagreb. Um, uh, salvia wisui, uh, geranium max fry, Rudecia fulgida, Echinacea pallida, and Aster twilight, and Schizacrium scoparium uh, uh, little luke. And that'd be about on uh, Solid Eagle Wichita Mountain, I think. Okay. Uh, add one more. That's a very Vernonia. nice combination. Okay, add yeah, one more. Uh, uh, Vernonia. I think Vernonia Lettermanii. That, that'll give you a nice fall look. So between six or seven or eight of those. And then when you come to know them well, on my YouTube, uh, the next three shows I'm doing are going to be the plants, uh, a, a deeper dive into plants besides there's the characteristics you can find online. Like an example mm -hmm. is uh, if Solid Eagle Rigida, Rigida could sit down and have a conversation with us right now, the one, the one thing mm -hmm. I would want to express to humans is, you know, you, you like me for my larger foliage, my very vertical height. You like me for my flat, flat, uh, yellow, gold, yellow flowers. But you got to understand, I seed everywhere. I can't help it. That's what I do. And I, and I seed the first year from seed. So if you put me in a planting and you have 25, 30 other plants in the planting, I will dominate the planting in five years and shade out all those plants. And they don't have, they're not going to have a chance to live a full. I'm very aggressive. So that, that's what Solid Original wants humans to know. Because without knowing that, put 10 or 12 Solid in a planting of 50, 60 plants, that goldenrod will seed everywhere and take over 80, 90% of it in five, six years. And everybody top. So those are the kind of things that I share on the YouTube is kind of a have let, let's listen to the plants and acknowledge that they have something further to tell us besides what we know about them. And what are those things that they would like to share with us? I love it. I love it. I'm now thinking about all the plants in my garden and what they're trying to tell me. Right. Um, <laughs> Which I do, I do try and yeah. think of on a very regular basis. But then you're like, what do, what are the secrets that I'm still not hearing? 
Well, that's why I mentioned screwing up. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned that because the, the solid ego seated everywhere in a project I did. Right. And I had to fix that. So I had to go in and fix it. But I realized I'm not going to plan solid ego rigida. And I don't put it in. It doesn't mean I don't use it. I put it in the fourth or fifth or sixth year when the mm. children become adults. You know, when the young And they have the little, they have a fighting chance. Right. They're, they're, the solid yeah. ego is much less opportunistic when the plants are adults. It just has less space to come, come into. Yeah. So you just yeah, have to wait five great. or six years. You know, I think one of the the great riches of your treasures of your long life in this work, Roy, is the many other remarkable plants people you've had the opportunity to learn from to teach, to collaborate with. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and and this has really produced, again, like I said, some of our uh, hallmark movements in horticulture right now, but also some of our uh, well-known gardens. If there was a garden that you have uh, collaborated on, consulted on, that you are particularly proud of and would love any listeners who have the chance to go see it and learn from it, what what might that one be? Oh, I'd have to be Larry Garden in Chicago when I worked with Pete Outoff. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, that, that was, I, I learned so much from Pete. And, and the first thing I learned was how to be, how to be a good human being. I mean, you think someone that who's successful, sometimes they become other people based on success. But when I met Pete and we worked together on Lurie in 2004, his his passion for the plants and the placement of the plants, I, I just melted my heart. He was so I learned so much from him. And that was one of them is just how to, you know, to be a good person and, and to take genuine pride in what you're doing and the outcome of what you're doing. And he goes back every two years to Lurie. They invite him back because what, what that garden is, it's not really a, it's a garden, but people come there with all these opinions of what it should be. What should be more natives. It should be less natives. It should be turf. There should be more benches or what Pete created. There was something that changed the city and the style of planting in Chicago. At first, mm-hmm. at first, because nobody understood it, they thought it, it was too messy. And that was simply an excuse because they didn't know how to do it. And it, because they didn't know how to do it, they couldn't make that style of planting anywhere else. But in the last 20 years, that style of planting has, has become a signature in the city of Chicago and a lot of gardens. You go to the Chicago Botanic Garden, you go to the, even even the Morton Arboretum and, and boulevards and architects now, landscape architects. And the nice thing is it doesn't all look like Lurie Garden. People are creating their own pathways, defining themselves based on their style. But it's just, it's that naturalistic feeling. And and so I, I think, uh, and, and I think Pete too, he's got a, he's genuine. You know, he's just a genuine, and I have to say that about everybody I've I've met and worked with. I think Dan Pearson came to Chicago to look at prairies. God, he he's again genuine. He's he's an English designer. He's very true. And uh, now I work with Luciano Gubelet, 
He's an Italian designer. And he, 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 he almost cries when he sees different shades of light, the way light goes through shrubs and trees. And he, he, he's so artistic in the placement of trees, the pruning of trees, how to let light pass through and how that light's gonna reflect off the ground layer. And I thought to myself, boy, the people I meet are really cool people, <laughs> you know, to have that kind of intimacy with what they do. So I, I, I just think I, I've been real Fergus Garrett I met from Great Dixter. I took him, I took him to one of the seeded prairies out here in Fontana. I got a picture of a building on the ground in this prairie <laughs> taking pictures of the, of the foliage knitting together. He was so interested, always eating together and suppressing weeds. So yeah, Fergus and it, I'm, like I said, just uh, in, in, in our country too, there's a lot of wonderful plantsmen and designers. Like the, so it, it's just, it's, like I said, it's just really exciting time to be, uh, to, see, to see one style and way of doing something blending now into a new style of doing something. Yeah. And it is, I think, exactly as you just described, it is this wonderful um, confluence of really good humans, yeah. really authentically curious about what we can learn um, about improving the way we live with the plants and the places around us. And it's, it's for the betterment of us all, the work that you, oh, yeah. you yeah. have, you have grown and germinated these many years, Roy. Well, I'm, I'm still excited. I mean, I'll be 70 yeah. this year and it, you know, it used to be 70 was an old guy. So I, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like an old guy, but it's just that, there's so many things still to be excited about and to, to work people to work with and, and areas to plant. It's, and again, I still have more plants that nobody wants than in the nearest the Midwest. So, <laughs> so I've, I've got to, I've got to really go out there and show people all the possibilities these plants have for their future uh, in, in styles of planting. So I'm excited about that too. And being on your show is too nice. I mean, you're, you're out there in California. And it's so cool that we can have this conversation because it's happening in, it's not just happening in one little region. It's a internet. It's an international event. This It is. Yeah, it is. And, um, and it's a great uh, reminder that we're all little excited kids, no matter how old right. we are when it comes to being <laughs> a student of plants. And um, I so appreciate your time and being with me today and uh, sharing some of these stories Thank you very much, Roy. Well, I thank you. I, I, it's fun to talk about. I'm looking out the window. It's kind of gray and I'm really pumped up now. This conversation is very energetic. Roy Diblick is an American plants person treasure in our ecological and native plant gardening worlds. His writing, his plant selecting and introductions, his planting plans, his YouTube and public speaking, as well as several of the horticultural educational programs at universities in his area are all foundational to the ecological garden movement we are enjoying in our current time. 
Roy is the co-founder with Steve Coster and Colleen Garrigan of Northwind Perennials Farm in Burlington, Wisconsin, established in 1991. For my full conversation with Roy, please make sure to check out this week's podcast version of the program over at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. His stories and his knowledge and his experience is a wealth of information. Join us again next week when, in honor of Earth Day and all the hopes we have for it, we're back in conversation with Mary Reynolds of We Are the Ark, Gardens and Gardening as Acts of Restorative Kindness. Join us again next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation, as well as through support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.